healthcare is broken, and the healthcare industry is not going to fix itself. Reconstructing Healthcare is a podcast series where we interview the rebel entrepreneurs working tirelessly to disrupt the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we break down everything that's wrong with the current healthcare system and provide you with a blueprint to create better results. Now, here's your host, Michael Maneri. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, we have multiple guests on the show Mort Jorgensen from RX and Go, Paul Ford from Orchestra RX, and Promote John from VVO Health. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you very much, Michael. All right. So uh, here's the game plan. Uh, what we seek to do on the show is challenge the status quo and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to either lower their healthcare costs or improve value for their employees. Today, we're going to do something a little different. We are going to have a roundtable discussion on the state of pharma and prescription drug purchasing, as well as current and future trends. Just going to read a brief bio about uh, all three of you guys, so our audience uh, has a little bit of context about who they're listening to. So we'll start with Mort. Mort Jorgensen is the co-founder and COO of RX and Go, an alternative pharmacy distribution program for generic medications, offering lower costs for both employers and their employees. Promote John is the CEO of VVO Health, a specialty drug platform that uses data analytics and outcomes-based models to help employers control their specialty drug spend. And finally, Paul Ford. Paul Ford is the founder and CEO of Orchestra RX, a transparent and pass-through pharmacy benefit manager helping self-funded employers and health plans manage their prescription drug benefits and costs. Let's start with the fact that we now have the largest PBMs in the industry, Optum, CVS, and ESI. They're all now owned by large health insurers. And then you have Anthem, who's launching their own PBM, Ingenio RX. What's your opinion on the rationale for these mergers and, and what you think, if any, the marketplace impact will be? I'm happy to start. Vertical integration is obviously supposed to generate two things, more control for the health plan in terms of the entire value chain of services they can provide to people. And then the second thing is it's supposed to reduce costs, eliminate inefficiencies, you know, reduce overhead, et cetera. So that's all of the basic economic uh, reasons for why these uh, mergers have been articulated and happening. I think more, more or less, it's just a way for these you know, larger and larger companies to continue to extract more and more dollars for basically providing less and less services. Uh, another quick thought to add, we're kind of seeing what happens when deep consolidation occurs, uh, short of a monopoly, and kind of another industry, and that's kind of the Facebooks of the world, where uh, there's a call to blow them up because they have too much power, control, and verticalization, and, and reach. I think we'll see a little bit more of that, right? Call from the public, employers, and the government to say, hey, PBMs, you're getting bigger and stronger. We're not necessarily seeing any cost reduction or any benefits from this consolidation. And not to say that they'll experience some of the same fates of a Facebook, but that's where some of the opportunity lies for the rest of the industry to say, hey, there's, there's, there's other opportunities to, to, to distill value out of what's otherwise um, an aggregated market. And Michael, to add to that, I think there's, when you look at sort of economically our system and how it's intended to work, when you look at simple things like, why did we come up with medical loss ratio requirements for the insurance market? Well, primarily the reason for that was to actually limit the amount of money that an insurance carrier or intermediary in this case, who represents the buyer can extract out of the transaction. And with the Affordable Care Act, that was basically set at 85 cents per dollar or 15 cents, if you will, on the other side is what you're allowed to keep for costs, profitability, sure. et cetera. And now it's a very clever scheme in which now you can extract an infinite amount of dollars from every dollar that goes by because you just pay yourself. And more and more, every one of the large carriers now is vertically integrating and they just pay themselves. So ultimately, one could argue this is actually breaking fundamentally the model that we're trying to get to as an intermediary. It's a deeper issue then from an economic perspective as single companies, what does competition look like for them and what does their market reach look like? This fundamentally breaks the way the system is actually organized or intended to work. And maybe the question that we should be asking the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice is, hey, why don't they apply the same standards that they would apply to mergers? to companies that already exist that have become monopolies, because we don't see the same directionality in the FTC or the DOJs, uh, if you will, how they're looking at those companies. They're allowed to just grow, 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 and get bigger. One of the 
the takeaways that I have is I don't see any of these mergers benefiting the consumers. I mean, these are all large public companies on Wall Street. They're beholden to Wall Street and they have to grow to satisfy their shareholders. And because it's hard for them to grow in the medical space alone, to grow their own market share, being able to have another revenue stream that's really hidden in most cases, I think that's the primary motivation. And I don't think there's, there's really any benefit to consumers from these mergers, but my opinion only. In any efficient market for any normal good and service that's, that's purchased, there's always price transparency to consumers, you know, which generally leads to competition and increased consumer value. But we don't really have that in the traditional drug pricing and in purchasing with a health plan. We have discounts, as you know, off of fictitious benchmarks and very little insight into what things actually cost. Furthermore, we have benefit designs, which actually insulate the consumer from the actual cost of the drug. So can I ask you guys to just peel back the layer of the onion here and and give our audience on your perspective on problems with our current structure of how we're purchasing drugs as payers? This is Paul. I guess I'll get things kicked off on this question. I guess I'll respond in, in a slightly different way. Some of the people that benefit most through transparency are HSA participants. So just like before you go to the store or you order something off Amazon, maybe of a slightly higher dollar value, you're going to go check your checking account balance to make sure funds are there and you know the budget is still running stable and then go execute and get what you want to go get. In the benefits world where someone may be exposed to a $20 copay when the plan is facing two, $300 or more on the other side of that cost, there's really this illusion as to what the drug really costs. In an HSA environment, we found that those participants are, are more deeply engaged because every January 1, there's a deductible reset and they're being exposed to that, that kind of quote-unquote full retail price of the drug through their PBM. And then they're having to make decisions about how they're going to afford that or pay for that or use a discount card in lieu of. And they try to get a little bit more sophisticated you know, when they hit the deductible other rules apply. But that engagement mechanism, that's where there's truly been a, uh, an opportunity to engage and, and reap the benefits of transparency. Otherwise, it's a, an obfuscated game where sometimes PBMs will just give you enough transparency so that they're, they're doing a little bit better than, than their competitor, which is always uh, you know, a, a bit self-serving, but uh, uh, it's also, I guess, business as usual. You know, one of the things is that when, you know, that question also is that as it turns out, it's not a uniform question when you talk about drug pricing. When you look at a, a generic drug, for example, and the market for how the market for generic drugs works versus brand drugs versus specialty drugs, all of those are quite different. But the one key aspect that's common across all of them is that the buyers of these products today have no visibility into understanding how those markets function. Mm-hmm. And every market that's actually changed, whether we as consumers, the markets change because we have more pricing information than a seller does. And today we're in a market where we have less pricing information because of the lack of transparency. And fundamentally, it's not just transparency. It's a lack of understanding. I'll give you an example. NADAC has been publishing pricing for generics now for years. And so anybody can go and the government is actually publishing. And especially where this matters is not as much on the brand side, but for generics, for example, Mm -hmm. you can go find out what pharmacies in America are paying. And if you were to look at that today, you'd see, you know, 10x, 20x, 30x differences between what somebody's actually purchasing these drugs for on the generic side and what they're being sold for. So it's not an information problem in this case. It's really how we've created a system of buying through these intermediaries who represent themselves rather than the people who buy. And when you look at brand drugs, you see something slightly different. I mean, the problem there isn't a pricing information problem. I don't know if you saw this, but Harvard Medical School did a study looking at Medicare participants Part D program Mm -hmm. and elderly people who hit the donut hole. They showed successfully that almost none of the people who hit the donut hole for uh, Medicare participants would have hit if they had used a previous generation insulin rather than the current generation of insulin. And there's no clinical difference at all between the prior generation and the new generation, Mm -hmm. except things like convenience. But the market doesn't know that. And then if you look at the specialty drug markets, you find a slightly different thing. We keep paying for drugs that have no evidence at all, even in the trials, that they actually do anything. 
And so as you break these things down, you find there are a lot of different reasons that often we don't understand and aren't educated about why in these different markets pricing works in the way that it does. And in some ways, the problems are different depending on which segment of the market you look at. That's a great point. I appreciate you highlighting that. It is different problems for the different types of drugs. I don't think anyone's quite you know, put it that way before. Mort, did you have a comment? Maybe coming just from a slightly different side, which is I, I think probably the problem here is also just how benefit design has been applied. Typically, when we buy goods in any other part of the economy, there's sort of some sort of trade-off between price and quality, whether the quality is real or not. But when it comes to prescription drugs, you know, because of the complexity, the buyer, that patient, doesn't really have any idea whether a generic or brand or especially a drug is a better solution for them. The only thing they know is that they pay a lower copay for a generic drug and they pay a higher copay for a brand name drug and even higher maybe co-insurance for a specialty drug. They don't really know which one of these are better. They sort of rely on this healthcare provider that's supposed to have the best interest of this person in mind that typically they spend eight minutes with, and then they leave with a prescription, and then they gotta sort of figure out with the benefit design, which one am I gonna do? The fundamental way of buying things when it comes to prescription drugs are completely different than anything else we acquire as consumers. And that makes it very difficult to try and tell people based on benefit designs, you have to be a better consumer of, these, of this benefit of these prescription drugs. I have no tools, I have no real knowledge other than what my copay tiers would guide me to. I love two of the comments that you just highlighted. One is the fact that you've got a a physician who is prescribing something and who may not be sure about its efficacy for the patient, but who certainly knows nothing about the actual cost of the drug that they're prescribing. And the fact that consumers don't have the right tools or support to actually be consumers. With that said, how do we move towards a model And perhaps it's what Paul alluded to in in sort of the HSA model, but how do we move toward a model that brings more transparency and support to consumers and payers? I think that the model should be ideally akin to going to the supermarkets and buying chicken. I mean, there should be a price that's known up front and saying this chicken, whether it's a good, better, best chicken or whatever it is, but the price is per pound. And then, you know, then you can sort of make a decision as to one, do I need one cooked chicken tonight? Secondly, you know, do I want to afford it? All these fundamental things should be it. But the way it works right now is that that buyer only has a copay in mind. And as, as, as both Paul and John has, has pointed out, somebody else traditionally pays a lot more for something that nobody really has a, an appreciation for what cost. So if we simplified the model, and there's obviously you know, a reason for why this model is so complex. If we simplified the model, that means that payers, if payers requested we want to know what the cost of these individual drugs are in dollars and cents, not as a discount to an imaginary pricing list or something else. That is going to help drive some of that transparency and price discovery that everybody seems to want. Even the White House and government seems to want this, but somehow everybody wants it, but it's not happening today. Paul Promote, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Mort brings up a great point about other people paying, but I think it's even more interesting because if you look economically at high deductible plans or insurance in general, if you look at the average person and what they pay, you have the gym membership problem. And the gym membership problem is the, hey, if you offer free gym memberships, who are the people who are going to take you up? They're the people who are already going to the gym, not the people who don't go to a gym. And in the same way, you have the same problem, which is that when you look at healthcare spend, it's highly Pareto in distribution. And about 1% of the people spend 50% of the dollars. You know, a lot of people have studied this, you know, Phil Gawande, who's at Haven now, and you've seen, sure. you know, number after number, we've seen this in the drug space. And so part of the problem that we see is that, for example, when you have a 1% spending 50% of your overall dollars or 2%, you know, spending two, uh, over, over, overall dollars, it actually doesn't matter what the person who tries to save $10 on a specialty drug, I mean, on a, on a generic drug does and how great of a consumer they are because the dollars in your pool are being driven by the 50% and they're always going to hit their out-of-pocket maxes for the year, which right. means that our problem isn't what you spend. It's likely if you're a low spender and an average person, your problem isn't that. The reason your rates are going up is because of the one out of 100 people sitting next to you and what they're spending. And you have no control over that. 
And as a result, the only party who has the ability to alter that is the person in the middle who represents everybody rather than just one person as an individual. And that's why that part that uh, you know, Mort brought up about why payers, the people who pay for these things, have got to take a different stance than just saying, it doesn't matter, it's other people's money, I don't care. Now, the reason why they've got to take a different stance is they're the only ones who can represent everybody because of how Pareto distribution actual spend is. What I'm hearing in that comment is that the payer, whether it's an employer, let's not use a health plan as an example, because I think, I mean, health plans, especially if you're one of the public ones, they don't really care about controlling costs. But if you're an employer, what you're saying is the employer has to be the one to drive it and not rely on the consumer. You know, that's a really interesting distinction that you bring, because you're right. The employer is the only one today who's got a pure economic interest in this. Because whether you overpaid for a healthcare service or you bought a $2,000 toilet seat, ultimately to you as an employer, economically, those two things are the same. Yep. But we don't treat them the same. Because today we're fine with people making very expensive healthcare purchases where it's no different than the $2,000 toilet seat. We're fine with it. And also what's more insidious about this is that Remember, every time an employer health plan for, you know, that's, uh, an employer health plan says, hey, you know what? We don't like to get phone calls and we don't want unhappy members. As a result, we want to give our every employee the best or the greatest or whatever the definition of that is. So we sure. don't care what it costs. Well, guess who's actually driving up prices for goods and services? Every time we go out to, in, you know, to the store and decide that we're going to pay $500 for lettuce, what do you think is going to happen to the price of lettuce? It's going to rise. Paul, any thoughts? Mort brought up something that also goes back to your other question about the, the peeling back the layers. If you were to imagine the cereal aisle of a grocery store as being representative of the drug industry and only generics at that, there's multiple manufacturers creating the same generic drug. And if you look at the actual pricing list that comes from the other intermediary that others don't talk about very often, which are the wholesalers, you know, you have a single generic drug that has wide pricing variability. We're talking hundreds of percentage between the same generic drugs produced by a different manufacturer. So even if you were to throw that shelf marketplace at a consumer, I think the consumer would say, oh, that's interesting, right? The quote unquote Cheerios version by General Mills versus the uh, the other by Post, hmm, I'll save, you know, a dollar, right? Plus there's a coupon sitting on the shelf. It becomes a totally, uh, entirely different game, but most don't even get exposed to that because the pharmacies make those decisions. It's, it's multi-layered, multi-faceted. Quite honestly, I, I don't think there'll, there'll ever be a really perfect way for a consumer to have 100% transparency because there's so many layers and people uh, and entities involved. But, but the, the fairest shot seems to be a more direct relationship between quote unquote drug manufacturer, maybe pharmacy and consumer and, and the intermediaries become thinner in creating just pure value of helping people make decisions. If I could add one more thing to what Paul said, Paul also brought up the point of pharmacies, for example, let's take all the other intermediaries out except potentially the pharmacy and the manufacturer. And if you go back and ask, well, why do pharmacies play such a centralized role in, for example, the distribution of a lot of drugs where primarily, if you look at legal requirements around what pharmacists must do in every state, they're primarily around control mechanisms more than anything else. You know, for example, we have pharmacists that have to review pill counts. Do you think a machine could count pills better or do you think humans do? Where do you think the statistical error is higher? And today we've got laws in every state that are created by state pharmacy boards which have pharmacists on those boards rather than disinterested economically disinterested parties mm -hmm. who make laws that state that they must count pills and verify them. And you're like, what sense does that make? And so clearly a lot of these things are not a question of what makes the most sense from an efficiency perspective. And a lot of these intermediaries who've inserted themselves, even the healthcare system, are largely driven by economic interests of their own rather than what is the most efficient way to get this to a consumer. Mm -hmm. Paul touched upon something that's important as well as the drug wholesalers. The interesting thing is we talked earlier on the, when we started here on the mergers between PBMs and health plans, the drug wholesalers are also highly, highly consolidated. 
really there's only three large wholesalers that you know control about 80% of the market. So you know, again, the pharmacies or the buyers of the medication are sort of in between very consolidated wholesalers and very consolidated, very large integrated health systems that manage the cost on their behalf. And who does that construct benefit the most? It sounds like transparency certainly may be hard to bring to bear, but certainly there's the opportunity to maybe create more consumer incentives than exist in, in the you know, traditional copay drug structure. Let's talk about misaligned incentives for a second. There was uh, recently an article that discussed how some states, in this case, it was Kentucky and Ohio, were dismayed at the amount of profit generated to PBMs from these spread pricing methods in their Medicaid plans and how the profits increased with higher drug prices. And I thought the response from one of the PBMs was telling. Uh, they responded to the article basically saying, spread pricing arrangements provide predictability, competitive rates, and deliver value for our clients. You know, one, what's your thought on that response? And what do you think the best ways are to correct misaligned incentives and actually create industry incentives that reward payers and consumers? This is Paul. I think it's going to go back to the notion of transparency because games can be played when things are obfuscated. There'll be a rising tide of optimism over the next couple of years when a lot of the, the concern over privacy issues of data become accentuated across multiple industries. And then everyone starts to understand that the clear unlock and opportunity is member consent. So um, you're, you're seeing in the news today, uh, SureScripts in a legal tussle with uh, PillPack and Amazon over sharing patient data because uh, Amazon would like to share that, get that information on the patient to figure out how to sell them what they need better, faster, potentially cheaper. Whereas other intermediaries are saying, no, no, we, we can't allow that to happen. Because you know, too, like you'd be right there on the patient's doorstep digitally, showing them things they've never seen before. That's scary, right? For a disruptive uh, disruption event in the industry. When you look at HIPAA, PHI regulations, state variances across the board, when member consent starts to play a bigger role, where a, you know, a Paul Ford, the Pomod John, Mort. Uh, we can all say, no, I'd like to offer my personal health information, what drugs I've been on, right, to the market. And then you show me something that's more compelling to make me change my mind. And I think that's where all of a sudden, you know, the, the game is almost about done. <laughs> because you'll have, you know, a manufacturer that says, well, we'll give it to you for this price, right? Or uh, some other intermediary that will say, well, we'll give it to you for this price. And then you start to see these machinations of, of value through transparency and pricing, but a lot of that can be kind of at arm's length because there isn't that relationship allowing that enablement of my data into the marketplace uh, to create that value. That's just you know one thought and approach that I can offer. I think that's a very interesting vision for sure, whether or not it's realistic or not. But you know, certainly that would be an ideal state, <laughs> you know, where people are, you know, actually competing for our business, you know, based on the fact they have access to our, our PHI. Michael, if I, could, if I could add one more question, I mean, comment yeah. there. I think that generally when we think about things like transparency, right? If we were to ask anybody, hey, is transparency a good idea or not? Right. I think all, I think it'd be hard for us to find people who'd say, I think that's a terrible idea. You know, obfuscation yeah. makes perfect sense. So if we were to take a step back and ask, well, okay, what do we not know about generics drugs in America? Right. From a pricing perspective, is this a transparency problem? And I'd argue that every month there's a new article talking about spread pricing or other things. This isn't new. Go back 20 years and you'll find articles talking about the same thing in various forms. Mm -hmm. And so the issue isn't a lack of understanding that there's obfuscation going on. As a result, that is why the government launched NADAC, for example, to collect pricing in the generic space. And they've been publishing that for years. Now, let me go back and ask a slightly different question. Why haven't we done anything with that information? And why do we keep going back to the same PBMs that the state of Kentucky already knew that that's what their contract was and they were spread pricing and they bought something and now they're complaining about something that they signed up for knowingly. At some point, it's like our biggest problem isn't a lack of transparency. It's that we keep going back to the people who say, we're robbing you. And then we say, oh, okay, we're going to buy anyway. And until right. we stop that practice, then us talking about transparency and all those things isn't going to change anything. 
there's people who you shouldn't feel sorry for because like you say, they, they keep going back to, you know, the, uh, the people that they know are robbing them. But that said, there still is a decent amount of ignorance in the marketplace relative to how things work and understanding how to get something or align yourself with uh, a vendor who's working in your best interests. So yes, spread pricing has been, been talked about and, and discussed for, for a long time. It's not necessarily the only misaligned incentive. You know, I think about rebates. We recently had a situation where we had a client pick a PBM largely based on the flawed model in the consultant community, which is looking at discounts and rebate guarantees. I've said it before. I do believe it's a flawed model of, of comparing PBMs, but in a lot of ways, it's what we have. And this happened to be a PBM who had the largest rebate guarantees and the client picked them and they still saw their costs go up significantly. So how good are those rebates, right? And, and, and how good is that spreadsheet that you looked at to, to make your, your decision? So I guess the question goes, I mean, are drug manufacturer rebates a good or a bad thing? And do they negatively influence the process of getting someone the most effective therapy for their condition? It's kind of like asking, is it better to drive a car with three wheels or four? That's a question you can really can't ask in a vacuum. It's something where it, we've seen that as well with, with business. We write a really nice offer might come in from an incumbent PBM with dramatically different uh, rebate guarantees. <laughs> but when you start to look through their quote-unquote AWP minus pricing and other contractual language, they're going to get you on that side. But and then some. So that's why the price continues to go up. You really have to look at it all, all at once. And it's akin to juggling at least 10 different balls in the air at once. Whereas most people can only juggle maybe one. You know, it's something that we all can do a better job of in our respective roles, but there's a lot. There's a lot there. Yeah, so to paraphrase uh, Warren Buffett, you know, I don't invest in something I don't understand. You know, I think, you know, a lot of groups could say, I don't understand this rebate thing. So I'm not going to buy something I, I don't understand. You know, it leaves just too much viability into my purchasing decision. When there's all these, you know, unknown factors and pieces that are moving around, you know, why would I buy that? Why is that to my benefit when I'm paying either as a consumer or a health plan? We don't buy gas based upon what, the, you know, the, the Brent oil prices in the Wall Street Journal on any given day. Similar to this, I mean, it's just it's sort of illogical to want to buy this and accept that there's this unknown quantity of dollars moving around that I'm somehow participating in, but I don't really appreciate at what level that I get to participate in it. It just seems illogical, but it is obviously very profitable for those people that have the information and can manage it. I think that maybe the, the question is, is it beneficial, but for whom? Yes. And so in this case, yes, it's absolutely beneficial for pharma. It's absolutely a great thing for PBMs because their model relies on that. And it's absolutely great for consultants. But it's an absolutely terrible thing because in every market that we've disrupted, the first thing that the market has gotten is pricing information. And the one thing that we're obscuring in this case is pricing information. Right. And, it, and, and the issue with the rebate isn't pricing because we always think it's pricing. It's not. It's actually steerage. Yes. The bigger issue with the rebate isn't did we pay the right price? It's that now a PBM decides that when there's a drug, the new hep C drug on the market that costs one quarter of what the existing hep C drug on the market does, that drug never sees the light of day because there's a bigger rebate on the drug that costs four times as much. And as a result, we all get to pay twice as much for the drug because we got a big rebate where we could have paid 1x just face value for the drug. And we think that's a good deal. And as a result, the problem with this is that drugs that are good fail to see the market and drugs that are bad continue to be sold in this country. And that is a significantly bigger problem than how much we pay for the drugs. Going to the opaqueness of the pricing, the rebates don't allow us to actually see net costs and actually understand how to steer towards the most cost-effective therapy in any given category. That is an obstacle for change, if you will. But your, your point is, is valid. It is more about steerage. Talk about who benefits the most. It's generally uh, going to be driven for the uh, intermediary and not the employer. Let's talk about 
waste for a second. You just talked about the hep C example, right? The one that costs a quarter of the, the price not seeing the light of day. So to me, that speaks to the scenario of you have a therapeutic category, you have a number of drugs that do essentially the same thing. Huge price variation exists, you know, 100%, 300%. What do you think needs to be done to insert the proper consumer incentives into the process of benefit design, formulary design, and, and consumer education to actually try and eliminate some of that waste that naturally exists? Michael, I'll take a stab at that. I think that in some ways, we would start and argue that we need to start at a different point. And it's not the consumer. Because consumers do well on things that consumers buy. Drugs in this country, a consumer does not dictate what they buy. It is a nope. physician that decides what they buy. Nope. And a consumer in America cannot buy that drug without a prescription. And so largely trying to get a consumer to fix something that the primary buyer in this case or person who steered you towards that has either no visibility or understanding of the drug itself or the economics or pricing of the drug. Well, a consumer is not equipped to solve that problem. I mean, a consumer can make a simple decision of, do I want to pay 25 bucks or do I want to pay 250 bucks? That's an easy one. Sure. All of us are really good about making that choice. But when a doctor says, you must have this, for example, immediately we assume that we must have it. Mm -hmm. We've never asked the question of how are we sure and what data did that doctor use to make that determination? Does the doctor understand the trial data themselves? And what we see categorically as we've interviewed physicians is the issue is that most physicians have actually never read the clinical trial data themselves on the drugs that they're prescribing. Right. We find that most physicians do not understand the difference between efficacy, which we use all the time, which is population response rate, which means how many people out of 100 at the endpoint versus effectiveness. The question of, well, what did the drug actually do for the patient? And was that useful? And so trying to get a patient to solve that problem that we have fundamentally outsourced to the expert who doesn't understand the details of what they're doing, I don't think a consumer is equipped to solve that problem. And maybe we should go back to the physician and ask, hey, why aren't you solving that problem? And secondarily, when we look at even things like the opioid crisis, it's a phenomenally interesting example of we've gone back after the people who actually sell these things and create them because they have deeper pockets. Mm -hmm. rather than going back and asking, well, what about all those physicians who prescribed all of this? Where's their culpability in this? And the reason we don't go after physicians is that physicians individually don't have the pockets. As a result, it's not useful to go after them. The system sort of has this inherent trust that a person goes to the doctor and the doctor prescribes them something you know, to help them you know, feel better, live longer, be more productive. And that person leaves the doctor's office and now has to do something. They have to fill that prescription. They have to you know, go to a retail pharmacy or go to a mail order. Some way they're going to, there's a whole set of actions they have to take. And even if they take all those actions, they still have to take the medication as the doctor prescribed. And there's just very, very almost non-existent follow-up um, on many medications in terms of there's this trust that people would do it. And when they come back to their doctor three months or six months or nine months later, with the same symptoms and, you know, the doctor asked them, did you take your medication? It's like, maybe, you know, every other day or, you know, I did it for a couple of days and, you know, it makes me not feel very well. And then I just didn't do it. But there's this, you know, interesting thing where the doctors prescribe something and then there's this expectation that the person who gets the prescription are going to follow these instructions, you know, 100% in order to get the outcome. And we all know that, you know, we're human. I mean, life gets in the way of many, many things. So there's a tremendous amount of waste. There's a tremendous amount of medication that have been prescribed, that have been paid for, that sits in, in medica, you know, medicine cabinets across the country. And all people have to do is reach in and take one. But that last action is not being done on a consistent basis. For our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with VVO Health, I mean, promote what you talked about. That's part of your business model, right? I mean, you are, you know, when it comes to specialty drugs, working on understanding efficacy versus effectiveness and educating the provider. The classic example I recall from our interview was Humira, which I think works actually works in like one out of three patients, something like that. I can envision something like that for, you know, other categories of drugs, you know, whether it be, you know, brand or, or generic, you know, focusing on the actual effectiveness and to Mort's 
point, you know, having some sort of health plan mechanism where there's a follow-up to be like, Hey, did this actually work <laughs> or not? Or are we continuing to spend money on something that doesn't work? I'll ask Paul to make a comment here, being the PBM on, on the line. I mean, Paul, from a benefit design standpoint, how would you suggest an employer attack, right? This notion of waste when there's multiple options in the therapeutic category and we can't rely on the consumer because as you guys have pointed out a couple of times in the show, the consumer is not equipped to make those decisions and you can't necessarily rely on the physician. So from a benefit design standpoint, you know, what would you suggest an employer approach this? The best thing an employer can do is start where Pramod said, which is it's not going to be the, necessarily the employer or the consumer. It's going to be that intermediary. So first ask yourself, does the intermediary, how do they make money? Right? So uh, a lot of the work that, that our firm does, we get paid from our performance. When you think about the concept of traditional PBMs and how they make money versus some of the things that we do, we actually create clinical benefit designs behind the scenes that, that are in place at every PBM. And for example, using prior authorization in a more sophisticated way to gate kind of clinical experiences. Um, so in other words, if, you know, if there is a drug that works one out of three times and there's plenty of clinical evidence as to what the optimal patient is for that drug, that prior authorizations kind of step in the process is where clinical pharmacists reach it, reaches out to the patient's doctors and care team to see what's going on behind the scenes. If that patient is not an optimal patient, deny the drug, right? And so there's a denial report that comes out monthly so that the plan sponsor understands here, here were the drugs denied because these were, you know, um, suboptimal patients where the drug most likely wouldn't work. And then behind the scenes, the care team is working on improving that, that patient's viability for the drug or stating their case more appropriately so that they can resubmit and maybe that goes through. That's just a very simple way to eliminate some of the more expensive waste that's floating around there. It's actually embedded within the clinical rigor of prior authorizations, step therapy, uh, which can be applied to titration, uh, biosimilars and specialty drugs as well. So, so there's a solve there, but you'll never ever see it unless your intermediary is actually working from that basis of creating value. The pipeline for specialty drugs continues to grow as do the price tag for some of these drugs. And so employers find themselves in this interesting position of a pain for the insurance, the insurance automatically covering for the most part, anything that the FDA approves as, as safe. They don't have any ability to negotiate pricing for these outrageously priced drugs. So what's an employer to do to protect themselves against Big Pharma, which, you know, largely sees, you know, the employer marketplace is kind of a blank check writer, right, for their products. I mean, I'll take an obvious stab at that, which would be stop paying for drugs that don't work, right? <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, part of our problem is that we make assumptions that pharma can do whatever they want and we're obligated to pay. Well, it turns out that's not true. The Affordable Care Act, Department of Labor, ERISA, when you go down the path on all these things and ask where in, in any of the legal descriptions of how we run and operate a plan, are there requirements that state that because the FDA has approved something, we're obligated to pay for it? And the answer to that is it doesn't. These are clearly assumptions that we've made and things that in the industry, it benefits the current incumbents to operate in that way. Because, Michael, the, the problem that you described isn't just that a new drug comes out and it has, a great, it has a big price tag. But as Paul pointed out, when the price tag is higher, everybody in between benefits from the higher prices. And when you've got an economic model in which everybody gets paid when prices go up, well, then it's not rocket science to figure out, well, yeah, that's why prices go up and we have no way to control that. So unless we're willing to say, look, that business model doesn't benefit the people who pay and we refuse to do that, well, then nothing's going to change. And I'll give you an example. I mean, often we're not even asking these questions of what is an FDA approval? Even if we believed that an FDA approval was the gold standard, well, it turns out there's no such thing. There are many types of FDA approvals. About a month ago, a meta study came out looking at 93 of the oncology drugs. So talk about a space in which 
we all want to see new drugs, a huge amount of public effort in the oncology space when you look at our public dollars. 93 drugs that had breakthrough approval status. So a breakthrough approval means that the FDA looks at a drug and it looks promising. There's no definition of what that actually means when it says looks promising. And since 1992, they've approved 93 drugs in that category. And they found in retrospect that only 19 out of the 93 had any improvement in overall survival in retrospect. And the average improvement in overall survival was three months for the 19 that had a positive improvement. And here's the problem. When we pay for bad drugs, whatever somebody asks, there is no incentive in the market to create good drugs that we're going to pay for. So the biggest issue for us isn't that we're overpaying. It's that we've created a disincentive in the market to say, we need good drugs that work because every day we pay for bad drugs that don't work. I guess the, the one that flashed across my radar recently was, uh, I think it's called Zolgensma, treats spinal muscular atrophy, which I guess occurs in one out of every 10,000 people and price tags expected to be two to $4 million. You know, for a drug like that, the, the paradigm shift that you're talking about is the employer doesn't have to cover it. I mean, they can just, they can exclude the drug if they want to. So, you know, that's a really interesting case because why that's an interesting case is that you're absolutely right. Employers are asking themselves the question of, hey, clearly in America, we overpay for drugs for no reason other than the fact that we feel like we must. And so when you look at that, all of us look at that and say, two and a half million dollars, which is a projected price for Zolgensma, is a really high price, right? Here's the counterexample to that. If you were to look today you will find employers today routinely paying millions. We have employers who are paying $2.5 million a year for an enzyme replacement therapy for life. Okay. So let's contrast this for a second. Yep. We're complaining about a cure for $2.5 million that affects 500 patients in America. So the probability that any employer in America will see a patient who has SMA is almost a zero when you look at the probability, right. other than those 500 you know, people who have SMA. And so when you look at that across the population, you're like, wow, you're right. That's two and a half million dollars. It's egregious, but it's very, very limited. And the fact is it actually cures something. Today, we constantly are paying, we see people who are on enzyme replacement drugs, two and a half million dollars a year for life. Okay. And nobody in America is complaining about that. They think the cure for something Paying two and a half million dollars is a bad idea, but we pay two and a half million dollars for an enzyme replacement therapy for life. And no one's complaining about that. No one's even talking about that. We pay $120,000 a year for skin rash for life. And nobody's complaining about that. But we're complaining about a cure for two and a half million bucks for something that actually will kill you. I think there's something wrong with this conversation. And it's not the two and a half million dollar drug. It's the $120,000 a year for life for skin rash that's the problem. At what point do we get to, to a point where, you know, do employers need to stop relying on P&T committees to design their formulary? Do they need to start, you know, thinking about having more input on what they're actually going to cover versus what they're not going to cover? Yeah, this is Paul. They absolutely have to have more of a say-so. And it's almost doing what some of the large, large employers have done, which is they either partner with sophisticated consultants that can help them think through it better, or they end up hiring their own chief medical officer or some other clinical staff to think through how they're going to reap the benefits of a healthier human capital play on their business, right? Which is their employees. That's kind of the notion that's, that's floating behind that. And I would say probably the larger employers, the jumbo employers, oftentimes they're the ones who, who you know, talk about caring about controlling costs, but they're more, li- they're more likely to embrace policies that status quo policies that, you know, because they're worried about noise from their employee population. I'm more interested in understanding what middle market employers can do, you know, with a couple hundred employees to a couple thousand employees, because I think those are going to be the, the, the types of employers that are going to be willing to make, I guess, tougher decisions around cost than maybe some of the jumbos. Here's something to think about. For every new specialty or biosimilar that hits the market, you always have to ask yourself a first grade kind of question, which is, well, what was happening before that drug was released? There was some therapy or protocol in place before that biosimilar came out or that expensive specialty met. 
So if you go back and look at what was done previously, and that's not to be too sophisticated. It can be if you want. You look at that efficacy versus whatever data is out on the efficacy of this new drug. There's a really strong kind of proposition, which is most groups can adopt a stance of lagging the approval of any new drug by five years, right? So if, if a new drug has come out in the last five years, not covered by the plan, and just roll that forward. So that allows for time efficacy and other market mechanisms to really discern, is that a beneficial drug or not? And while still, while using kind of commonly widely accepted and used therapies and protocols for the same drugs and conditions um, um, that, we're, that we're talking about and discussing being covered in the first place. I'd ask a slightly different question, which is, does my supplier have a business model that aligns with what I'm trying to do, even before the yes. question of what it is that they do? For yes. example, is my data my data? I'd start with simple things like that. If that supplier's contract doesn't give you access and ownership over your data, I'd say that's a problem. If that supplier doesn't give you visibility into all the underlying contracts that they have with everybody else, that I would say is a non-starter. And the third thing I'd say is that if any time that you have to sign a contract that you as a buyer can't say that I have at will termination, then those are the three things. That if those things aren't there, I'd say, I don't even want to talk to that vendor unless those three things exist on the contract. Yes. I think that's a great point. And you know, truth be told, that's why I have all three of you on the show right now, because all three of you each have business models where your incentives are aligned with positive outcomes for the payer, you know, which is not always the case. Uh, but I think that is, you know, a, a primary question to ask in any, in any vendor partnership, you know, with an employer. More, you had a comment that you wanted to, to mention. Yeah, I just wanted to sort of point out that you know we talked a lot about noise and and you know how employer groups are willing to or are not willing to accept that. And I just sort of wanted to point out that may, maybe this is a time to you know both for the employer groups, middle market, and maybe some consultants to grow up a little bit. And what I mean by that is that you know most employer groups today have time and attendance policies, they have vacation policies, they have travel policies. Lots of things that might happen more frequently than, than even healthcare expenditures, where they are asking that people, you know, mainly because of efficiency and economic reasons, to do things that might be counter to what that employee really would like to do from a selfish point of view. But there must, and there will, and there is always noise around that. But somehow, when it comes to healthcare spend, in particular drug spend, there's this inherent fear of the noise. And I think it would, it's fair. I think it's a fair conversation for an employer to have, obviously within HIPAA and, and PHI, et cetera, to have a conversation with their members and say, I mean, I know you are paying a copay, but as part of this benefit that I'm providing you that, you know, round numbers constitute 30 to 40% of your overall compensation, I should have a little bit of a say. It's fair under some certain therapies for us to have a conversation. I'm not going to play doctor, but let's have a conversation about it. Let's not accept that this is the best outcome just because I'm paying for it. So I think there's a, an opportunity maybe to, to, you know, be willing to accept a little more noise than many groups are willing to do today. I'm going to close here with just one question. You know, while I am not a fan of, of government-based solutions, you know, is there any policy approaches from the government that, that you think can help the current situation? This is Paul. I, I alluded to it earlier. And there's been a pretty concerted effort around legislation, around uh, consumer and member data and liberating that data, right? So that the market can start to play a, a more transparent playbook, but things like the Blue Button Initiative, whereby EMRs, hospitals, patients themselves can request their medical records, um, and in some cases, with the push of a button, have all their records sent to them electronically, that's becoming more mainstream. That whole notion of members controlling their data, like Pramod said, uh, an employer that has access to their data, uh, data is going to be the key. Uh, because the data is where the truth is. It's just that most people don't have access to the data we're talking about. Michael, I think I would say that, yeah, absolutely. This is a policy problem at the root of many of the things that we're talking about. And so government intervention would, in fact, be necessary because the government intervention is what has created this problem. So, for example, today we have a one-sided market in which, for example, we have a requirement that there must be insurance with the Affordable Care Act. We have regulated the demand side of a market by saying that everybody must have insurance, 
but we have no regulation on the supply side of the market. Right. So the government has created a one-sided market. Every state has got an insurance regulator, but it has no provider regulator, right? So think about sort of how that's broken and created a one-sided market. That's something the government needs to fix. The second thing the government could do is to state that, you know, whether it's simple policies like, you know, the Trump administration's talking about a, well, no, no American, you know, no American's obligated to pay any more than any other country in the world is for a drug, something that's sold internationally, right? Which would be a great sort of standard for things that are sold in other markets outside of the U.S. It's the same drug being sold in other countries, right? Yep. Which is fair. Why should Americans pay more? In the same way, you could extend that to say, well, within the U.S., Maybe our, our law should be something in between the government intervention of Medicare for all to say, well, nobody's obligated to pay more than what Medicare pays. And if someone wants to, they're free to do that. But maybe an intermediary step would be for us to say Medicare for all would just mean that people aren't a, a, some, a payer isn't obligated to pay more than Medicare rates. Yeah. And you're free to implement that however you want. Mort, any thoughts? I think there are, there are other ways that the government can help with price inflation than trying to control pricing itself. And I think data is going to be key. And I think having a more, you know, a well-functioning market uh, with transparency and price discovery is going to help achieve that as opposed to when you read some of the, some of the, the policy statements to theirs that the government will to get in and say, this medication should cost X and this one should cost Y. I don't think that they are equipped to that one, two. Um, you know, that's not how you're going to achieve what it seems to be so much demand for, which is just a market that works more efficiently. And by having a more efficient market, you know, certain pricing will, will decline and quality will go up. And I think those two things have to be you know, in unison. All right. Well, hey, guys, we are, we are past the hour here. And so um, I want to uh, thank you all for your time. I think this has been, been great. You know, whenever I, whenever I talk with, uh, with any of you, I always feel like I learned something and I walk away with, with more insights on, on how to be a better, uh, consultant. So thank you for the comments and the great questions. I think you guys actually asked better questions than I did. So <laughs> thanks for your time today. really appreciate it. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. For those of you interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to all three of our guests' website and contact information, as well as a host of additional good content and articles. Lastly, if you're enjoying the content on the show, please take five seconds today and leave us a review. It's super easy. Open up the podcast app on your phone, go to our show's page and scroll down to the bottom of the page and let us know what you think of our review. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.